Revelation chapter number two tonight. Uh, we are uh, on to our third church, uh, the church of Pergamos, the church of Pergamos. And uh, Revelation chapter uh, number two, my Bible just closed on me. Revelation chapter number two, we're going to start reading in verse number 12. uh, Revelation chapter number two, verse number 12. The Bible says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful murderer, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication." So thou also them to hold, or excuse me. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he. That receiveth. And so, um, as you can see, the church of Pergamos uh, was not on the top of God's happy list. Uh, they were struggling. They, they were not doing things that um, uh, were pleasing to God. And so we're going to look and break down uh, the church of Pergamos. Did everybody get an outline? Anybody not get an outline? So make sure everybody got one. All right, good. Right at the top there. In this lesson, we will continue our study of the seven churches in the book of Revelation with the church at Pergamos. We began our study of the seven churches at Ephesus, and then last week we studied the church at Smyrna. Number one, the city. Talking about Pergamos, the city. We have the same basically five points every week, just kind of examining uh, these different seven churches. The city. The ancient city of Pergamos was about 700 miles north of Samaria, or excuse me, of Smyrna, and 15 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. On the side of Pergamos today sits a town called Bergama, which has a population of about 20,000. That's your underline there. 20,000, which is a vast difference from its heyday of more than 160,000. And so, as you can see, if you study the historical place of Pergamos, uh, in its heyday, it had more than 160,000 people dwelling there, and now the city is down to just about 20,000 people. And it's due to the fact that they did not honor God in the things that they did in that place. While Ephesus and Smyrna were commercial sites, Pergamos was a cultural and religious center. Pergamos was home to four major pagan in, uh, temples. Now, as we go through this lesson, uh, I'm, you, well, you're going to find yourself doing something, and I just want you to hang on to it, all right? Uh, you're going to find your mind beginning to wonder, and you're going to begin to think, boy, this sounds really familiar to today. 
the things that you're talking about sounds like things that are happening today. And uh, the truth of the matter is, is now that we are, 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 are traveling with these churches and you're beginning to understand them more, you're beginning to understand the statement that I made at the very beginning when I said that you're going to think to yourself that, that as these churches are explained, that you're going to be able to generationally connect them to things that are happening today as well as to our own lives. And so here we have Pergamos, who was a cultural center, but it was a cultural center to religion. And uh, they uh, had four uh, major pagan temples there. The first one was the temples to Athena. And, and I don't have time. I wish I did. But you can go home and study this. Uh, you can Google Temple of Athena in Pergamos, and it'll bring up all kinds of information for you. Uh, but the religion here was not a religion uh, that you would necessarily want to be involved with. It had no Christian, Christian roots to it whatsoever. As a matter of fact, they were trying their hardest to get people as far away from the Creator and God as possible. And so they built these temples, these shrines, these, these, these places that people would go to to worship. It was the, it was the basically, if I can put it to you this way, it was the heyday of, of idealistic worship. It was the heyday of people worshiping idols and, and going and, and, and replacing God uh, with, with idol worship. And, and here in this little bitty uh, city of Pergamos alone, only, you got to remember, only 160,000 people in its heyday. And uh, that little town alone, that little city alone, had four temples to move people away from God. That's serious. So they had the temples to Athena. Number two, uh, the temple of Asu. I can't even say it, so we're going to pretend like I did, all right? Um, uh, this is the God of healing whose insignia you even see today. It was the entwined serpent on a staff. And uh, that's where that insignia came from. Uh, was from this temple. And uh, you see that even today. And, and it was a God that they were worshiping uh, in replace of the one true God. Uh, then the temple of Dionysus or Bacchus. Uh, this again was a, uh, another temple that people would go to. And what this was is as you think about all these temples, uh, you can think about them as separate religions, uh, but definitely religions that were not of God. And so people literally had their choice of where to go to, to temple. I was going to say church, but we won't call it that. Uh, go to the temple to worship. And then the last one, which is probably the one you're most familiar with, is the Temple of Zeus. Uh, the Temple of Zeus, which had the largest altar in the world and was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The Temple of Zeus. And of course, we know today that there is still a mythological god uh, that they call Zeus. And uh, so th this was... This was, in all lessons, as I've titled this uh, uh, sermon or this lesson tonight, it was certainly the compromising church. It was certainly the compromising church because they were not the church that stood up against all this. They were the church that kind of stayed in the background and said, you know what, we're going to allow all this stuff to go on, but we'll, we'll continue to do our little thing over here and we'll let everybody else do their little thing over there. And we're not going to be bothered with it. And so because of that, this is what happened. And this is kind of the catalyst of this lesson or this thought today. Is that what happened in Pergamos is they allowed the church 
or excuse me, they allowed the world to come into the church instead of taking the church to the world. And if you look at our history in America, that's exactly what's happened. We have allowed the world to come into the church, and we are no longer taking the church to the world. And as a matter of fact, it's becoming very difficult to distinguish the church from the world in many cases. And so we have to be very cautious about that, that we do not become as Pergamos the compromising church. Pergamos was an intellectual center with a university that had a library of about 200,000 volumes. Now you may say to me, that doesn't seem like such a large library by our standards today, but I want you to remember in John's day, there were no printing presses. All the books were written by hand. So you have this huge university with a library of over 200,000 volumes, all handwritten. I'm telling you, that was probably a sight to see. Um, to, to see this instructional institution have this library that people were not accustomed to and, uh, it, and, and it all being handwritten. And so it was an intellectual center. So what we have here is we have a very smart city. People are very intellectual inside of the city. It was a college town, if I could put it to you like that. It, it was very intellectual. And their intelligence affected their religion. Did you catch that? Their intelligence was affecting their religion. It, it was becoming uh, uh, such a thing that they thought that, that, you know what, this God thing, this Jesus thing, this, this God idea was too easy. So we have to come up with a better method and a better way. I want to tell you something because I think this is very important that you understand. Is that people trying to find a new way to God is not a new idea. You say, what do you mean, pastor? From the very beginning of time, people have tried to find a different way to God other than through the blood of Jesus Christ. You say, can you prove that? Absolutely. It actually started with the first two children that were ever born. Do you remember? Cain and Abel. God came to them and said, it's sacrifice time. And what do you have to do? Uh, what kind of sacrifice should they give? They should give a spotless lamb. And then they should shed its blood on the altar. What happened? Uh, 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 Abel came and he brought the lamb. He brought the spotless lamb. What did Cain do? He brought the harvest. What did he bring? He brought his works. He was trying to find another way. And as they were there at the sacrifice on the altar, what did God say? God said that Abel brought a more acceptable sacrifice. Why? Because it was the sacrifice that God required. And then the Bible says, out of the fury of Cain, what did Cain do? He killed his brother. So this idea of trying to find a new way to God is not a new idea. People have been doing it from the very beginning. What's a God that people would just realize that it's already been paid for? And if they would just take the path that has been laid out in front of us, that, that they would not, and please don't take me the wrong way, they would not need religion. 
they would not need a denomination. They would just need Jesus. Because he is the one that we all need. So it was a very intellectual city. Because of all this, Pergamos was an important city in John's day because of its religious, cultural, and intellectual influence. Number two, the commendation. The commendation, verse number 13. The Bible says, I know thy works. And then he says this, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Those are pretty harsh terms. And thou holdest fast my name. Jesus said, hey, you are in the middle of Satan's work, but I want you to know as Christians, I'm going to commend you because you're holding fast my name. And hast not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. Twice in that verse, Jesus refers to Pergamos as where Satan dwells or where Satan's seat is. I would say that that's a pretty harsh statement, would you not? I would say that that's a pretty, uh, 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 putting it in place. And God is saying to Pergamos, or saying to these Christians at Pergamos, listen, I know what you're going through. It's literally the hub of Satan. But I have a commendation for you. I, I commend you for the things that you've been doing. Like the believers in Smyrna, the Christians at Pergamos had suffered persecution and at least one of them, Antipas, had been martyred. We see that in verse 13. However, um, nothing more is known of this incident for Antipas is not mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. You can go home and you can Google the name Antipas of Pergamos and uh, you will get all kinds of information. Um, I would caution you, though, uh, because I know some of you are going home and you're studying and all that, and that's wonderful. I would caution you, though, because there are uh, uh, stories concerning Antipas, um, even though I, I cannot um, historically tell you what is correct and what is not, because he's not mentioned again in the Word of God. But I would tell you this, that someone that's willing to be a martyr must have been a great Christian. That's what I'm going to tell you. And so there's a lot of things that, about Antipas that actually people are trying to relate uh, to today. Um, as a matter of fact, and I don't want to pique your interest at all, but some people in, 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 uh, are relating the, the martyrs of Antipas uh, with the church of Pergamos, with things that are happening over in the Middle East for a justification. And uh, I just want to caution you because people today, what they're doing is they're taking and manipulating the Word of God uh, into trying to allow it to fit into uh, their role and into what they desire to happen to Christians. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, they are twisting it in such a way that is untrue. And so that's, that can be said about a lot of things that we're going to talk about um, during the book of Revelation. And so I would just caution you about what you believe and what you don't believe. This is what I know. I know that the best commentary and truth on the Bible is the Bible. That's what I know. So therefore, if the Bible doesn't say anything else about Antipas, I'm good with it. When I get to heaven, I'll meet him. And we'll talk about it. You want to come over to my mansion, we'll have coffee together, all right? Um, so Antipas is not mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. Twice in verse 13, uh, Christ says Satan dwells in Pergamos. He says this city is even where Satan's seat is. 
Uh, again, a pretty, uh, a pretty harsh statement. This, in fact, refers to Pergamos being the center of pagan worship and also promoted emperor worship. We talked about emperor worship last, year, uh, last week with uh, Smyrna. This was a place where you could take your pick of the gods. Boy, if that doesn't sound like today, I don't know what does. You can just take your pick and we're okay with it. Everybody's going to be okay. And uh, the truth of the matter is, is that is not a new thing that's happening today. Uh, Again, you're looking at history unfolding in front of you. And that is exactly where Pergamos was. Satan's seat was there. And people just kind of took their pick as to what they wanted to believe. Uh, and it was as far from the truth as possible. Therefore, to, to declare Jesus Christ was the one true God and Savior who demands total and exclusive obedience would certainly provoke severe, and the next word is persecution. It certainly would provoke severe persecution. They were going to, here at Pergamos, experience persecution just as the church of Smyrna did. And I would tell you this, that as we study these churches, there should be an encouragement to us as Christians And that is this, if you're being persecuted, and I don't even know that we understand what that word means uh, in America yet, but if we are experiencing persecution, that means that we are doing what God wants us to do. We are standing up for what is right. We are saying that Jesus Christ is the only way. And certainly when that happens, persecution is going to happen. But in our, in our passage here, it was severe because these people had decided that God was as far away, that they, they didn't want God to be a part of their city. But these people at Pergamos, these Christians said, you know what, we, we are going to obey and we are going to demand that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And because of that, uh, they experienced persecution. However, an even greater point should be made of the statement, even where Satan's seat is. So many think of Satan as presently being in hell, but I tell you that that is not true um, because he is very active in our world. You say, Pastor, can you prove that? Actually, I can't, but the Bible does. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, does what? Walking about. It doesn't say anything about being in hell. He's walking about seeking whom he may devour. And that's what was happening in Pergamos. He was devouring people. And that's what's happening in our world today. People are, are losing focus of God because they're being devoured by the enemy. The enemy is winning uh, in, in many people's lives because they have decided that God is no longer uh, the right way. And do you know what? The truth of the matter is, is there is no way because Jesus said, I am the way. There is only one way. There are not multiple ways. There is just one way. No matter where you're at in your life, no matter what you think, Jesus said, I am the only way. If you want to part from this life to death to eternal life in heaven, Jesus Christ is the only way. And, and, and the enemy knows that. And that's why the enemy is so active today. Because I believe that he knows that his time is very short. The, the things that he does is becoming uh, increasingly uh, uh, fanatical and increasingly difficult because I believe that the enemy knows that his time is short. And that should be even more of a passion of ours to say, I'm not going to allow the enemy to overtake me because greater is he that's in me than he that's what? In the world. We have the victory. 
It is clear that in the city containing Satan's throne, there was loyalty to Christ. However, there are some exceptions, as we will see. Number three, the condemnation. The condemnation. Look with me in verse number 14 and verse number 15. The Bible says this, but I have a few things against thee. You know, I've been studying this pretty heavily, obviously, the book of Revelation. And as I study these, these uh, churches, every time I read this, but I have a few things against thee. I almost wonder if God would show up right here and he'd begin to say, these are all the things you're doing good, but a few things I have against thee. And I, I really got convicted about that in my own life. And I, I really began to pray and say, God, are there some things that you have against me? Because if there are, I want to fix them. He's not verbally, you know, writing me a letter saying, these are the things I have against thee. But here he is at the churches and he's saying, hey, you're doing a great job, but there's a few things that I have against you. And I almost wonder, if God was here, would he say that to me? I'm certain that he would because we're all flesh. We all have things that are, 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 are struggles in our life. And so I would say to you that our challenge today is those things that God has against us that we do like verse number 17, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit hath to say. Let's get those things corrected, which is what he was encouraging the church uh, to do. That was just a side note. That was free. All right. Um, but I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So he says, there's some things I have against you. There are some among you that have bought into the doctrine of Balaam. There are some of you that have bought into the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And I have that against you. You say, Pastor, what does all that mean? Well, though Ephesus had left its first love, Smyrna was suffering horrible persecution. Both churches had maintained sound doctrine. And all efforts to subvert the purity of the gospel had failed. We saw that in the church of Ephesus and in the church of Smyrna. On the other hand, according to verse 14, Pergamos had been infiltrated by the doctrine of Balaam. By the doctrine of Balaam. So it poses the question, what is the doctrine of Balaam? We must go back to Numbers chapter number 22 through chapter number 25 to find Balaam was a prophet for hire. Huh. A prophet for hire. I would encourage you to go home Read Numbers chapter 22 through chapter 25 if you've never done a study on who Balaam is and Balak. Uh, because it's very interesting uh, that here's a prophet, or a supposed prophet, who was for hire. In other words, whoever hired him is what he would adhere to. So let's just put it in today's terms. And I'm, please, please don't walk away from here and say, Pastor's bashing people because I'm so far not doing that. And I'm not going to call anybody by name. But <laughs> um, 
Here's Balaam. He can come over here and I can say, hey, Balaam, you're a great speaker. You're, you, you can influence people. So as the Baptist preacher, I'm going to hire you. And he'd come in here and he'd learn our doctrine and he'd get up and he would just make it sound like it was amazing. Well, then the Catholics come along and they say, hey, Balaam, we'll double the salary. See ya. It's nice to know you. And he'd go over here and he'd learn all about the Catholic religion and then he'd get up and he would just open it up and tell you about how great it was. And then this one over here would come and they'd say, hey, we'll give you a little bit more. Oh, I'm out of here. He was a prophet for hire. He was hired by Balak, the king of Moabites, to curse Israel. But each time God stopped him because we know that God is the ultimate one that's in control. And so Balak and Balaam were at a loss because God was stopping him every time he was trying to curse Israel. Since Balaam was unsuccessful in cursing the Israelites, he decided to corrupt them. Therefore, he advised Balak to seduce the Israelite men. In Numbers chapter 25, we're just going to read a couple of verses here. The Bible says this, And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifice of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. This is speaking of the Israelites. As a result of this idolatry and fornication that the Israelites got involved in, which was caused by compromise, 24,000 Israelites died. You can go home and read that, Numbers chapter 25 and chapter 31. Look at me for a moment. If you are a child of God, he will always punish you if you do wrong. If you are a child of God, he will always, if we get involved in corruption or we get involved in, in, in compromise or we get involved in anything that's contrary to the word of God, he will discipline us just like a father does with his children or a mother does with her children. And as a result of this idolatry and fornication uh, that, that, um, uh, that, that was brought into their lives, 24,000 Israelites died. Therefore, we find the doctrine of Balaam was a lowering of the standard of separation that God expects from his people and a compromise with the world. What did Balaam do? Balaam said, I can't stop them. I can't stop them. So what am I going to do? Because God is obviously, uh, every time I try to destroy them, God steps in. So what am I going to do? I can't stop them, so I'm going to persuade them. And I would caution you in your life that you be careful who you associate with in the fact of what you allow them to persuade you to do. Because God expects a certain standard. You'll never hear me. And to some of you in here, you'll say, Pastor, you should. And others in here will say, Pastor, you shouldn't. I will never stand in a pulpit and tell you what your standard should be. Because that's between you and God. However, I do believe that God expects separation. And I believe that's biblical. And I believe that, that uh, there is recourse for those who do not separate. 
There's a difference. Let me just hone in on this for a moment. There's a difference between a conviction and a preference. Are you with me? There's a difference between a conviction and a preference. My conviction is, is that I believe, let me just put it to you this way, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he is the only way to heaven. A conviction is something that I will not change in my life. It won't happen. That's what I believe. I believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. I believe that he was here 33 and a half years. He died on the cross. He was buried. I believe he rose again. I believe he's sitting on the right hand of the Father, and I believe one day he's going to come back and take his children home. That's something that will not change in my life. It's a conviction. As a matter of fact, I would pray that I am so grounded in my conviction that I would be willing to die for it. But you come up to me and you say, and you put a gun to my head and say, do you believe this? I would pray that I would say yes, and, and, and that would be the end of my life. But you come to me and say, would you die for the fact that you think you should wear suits on Sunday? Or would you die for the fact that you don't think that, that this person should do this or that person should do that or that you should go here or that you should go there? I'm liable to change what I believe about those things because those are just preferences. It's a huge difference. So what's my challenge today? My challenge is this, that you find your convictions and you don't allow them to change. That's what these people had done. They had changed their convictions, not their preferences, their conviction. There's a huge difference. In Revelation 2.15, Christ says that in the believers at Pergamos, there were also those who adhered to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, uh, which thing I hate, the Bible says, that, that God says. He says he hates uh, those things that are Nicolaitans. Now, we talked about the Nicolaitans before, and so I just want to revisit that for just a moment. Though the identity of the Nicolaitans is uncertain, the Greek word literally means laity conqueror. Some believe this refers to the fact that some of false teachers arose claiming to have special divine authority. So, so these people were buying into the fact that possibly, we don't know exactly what the Nicolaitans believe, but that there were icons in the church. That there were literally laity conquerors, people that... that uh, God was speaking to more than he was speaking to anyone else. I want to tell you something today, and I want you to really understand this, and I really want you to look right here at me, because this is something that we are pre- uh, faced with today. There is no man or woman that is a conqueror over the laity of the church. There is no one who is more spiritual. Now, you say, Pastor, I'm confused. We have a pastor and we have people that come to the church and all those kind of things. That's right, we do. There's a difference between leadership and domination. There's a difference between leadership and, and a, excuse me, I'm about to say, and a one-man religion. You see, we all have the same Bible. We all read out of it. We all choose, are you listening to me? We all choose how close we are to God. We all make that choice. We all make the choice of how much we study and how much we desire to know about God. 
Now certainly the pastor is put into place uh, into a church as a leader, but in, in, in throughout the word of God, you never see where someone like Paul or someone like Peter was ever a dominating factor in the church. What were they? They were leaders that worked together with the team. Because you look through it all throughout Scripture. Paul and Peter, they always say this term when they refer to the church. They or we. They never say I. So it's important that we understand that in our society today, no matter what you believe or who you believe in, no matter what you think about those that we feel like are, are higher than others, that is not biblical. And that's what some of the Nicolaitans had bought into, if that's in fact uh, who they were. Though no one knows for sure what Nicolaitanism is, one thing we do know is that Christ hates it. He does not hate the people, he just hates their deeds. And it's very important because it's interesting that he says that Christ hates it. And I believe with all my heart that if in fact it's laity conqueror, the reason that he hates it is because the Bible says, if I, speaking of Jesus, be lifted up. I will draw all men unto me. That's the important fact. Number four, the command. I got to hurry. The command, verse number 16. Repent. There it is. There's the command. One word. Repent. Oh, by the way, if you don't, I will come unto thee whenever I feel like it. I will come unto thee in a few years. No, I will come unto thee quickly. Now, I don't know what quickly means in your home. But in my home, if I tell my boys, come here and come now, there better be an immediate response. There better be a response in such a way that you're dropping everything that you have and you're coming to find out what the problem is. Come here and come now. They come quickly. Jesus said, if you don't do one thing, If you don't repent of this situation, I will come quickly, look at this, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He said repent. That was good, wasn't it? Nice timing. Um, The sword of my mouth. Christ's clear command is to repent. Was to repent. They were to repent from compromising with the world. They were to pre- repent of compromising with the world. Repent is what they were to do. There is no other alternative to continued compromise with the ways and the standards of the world. There must be divine judgment. There must be. As we discovered in Revelation 1.16, the two-edged uh, sword coming out of the Christ's mouth is the word of God. He was going to come and he was going to literally, uh, uh, as the Bible says, uh, or else I will come into thee quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And of course we know that to be the word of God, the sword of the mouth. And you know what? The truth of the matter is this. Look right here. We all have the word of God and we can all fight with the word of God against compromise, against the world's. Listen, the greatest, the greatest um, asset that we have as a Christian is twofold. One is the Word of God, and the second is prayer. And so I would say that we should know everything that there is to know about the Word of God and learn it and learn it and learn it. That way we can turn around and we can use it 
to fight against the enemy, to fight against those that are allowing compromise to come our way. I honestly believe that in, in, in this sense of the church of Pergamos, when Jesus said to repent, this was literally a complete turning away, a complete change of direction. And I would say that today as a church, and as a church in general is what I'm speaking of, that I believe that in some instances the compromise of doctrine is beginning to filter into churches and I believe the only answer to that just as it was with the church of Pergamos is to repent. What we have to do as Christians is we have to stand up against it. We have to stand up against it. I want to be very cautious here but I'm going to be very forthright. I believe this is what happens in many cases. Someone comes to us and they begin to share with us something that they encountered in religion. Or that they heard somebody say. And this is what we have a tendency to do. We have a tendency to buy into it. We have a tendency to listen. We have a tendency not to retort it. To not, to, not to challenge it. I would say that it's time as Christians that we begin to challenge our doctrine. That we begin to challenge those that are trying to tear down our doctrine. That we begin to challenge those that are saying, hey, you know, maybe, just maybe, Jesus isn't the only way. Or maybe, just maybe, uh, 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 he's not who he said he was. Maybe he is just a good man. Maybe there is another way. Maybe... Maybe this idea of prosperity living and everybody's good and happy and as long as you help the, the sick and the needy, that you're going to be fine. That is not the truth. It's not the truth. We, we, are, we live in a world where, unfortunately, prosperity gospel has filtrated the church. And the reason that it's infiltrating the church is because it's bringing prosperity. Can I tell you that the Bible speaks more about money and the evilness of money than he does about salvation? I would say to you that we is come to a place in our lives where we have to stand up for what's right. We have sat and watched it all happen for too long. Now it's time to stand up and say, no, this is the truth. Because the truth is being watered down and it's being muddied. John chapter number 12. If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I come not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth, rejecteth me and receiveth not my words, hath one that judge, or judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. God judges not only the lost, but also the believer by the standards of his word. The word of God will sharply judge all compromise and all sin. Number five, the comfort, and we're done. Verse 17. This is actually really neat um, as you read verse 17. Because there are some things that are in here that you may not know what they mean. And uh, it's very interesting as you begin to study history 
and, and what these items mean. Verse 17, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth. So as you look at this, you may think to yourself, what is the hidden manna? And certainly we want to know what the white stone is. And uh, this is very interesting because you have to go back and you have to study uh, uh, a little bit of the manners and customs of the time of Jesus to understand what these words actually mean. Uh, Again, there is the call to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Word of God gives us some interesting thoughts in verse 17 for us to study. The hidden manna. This is obviously a reference to the golden pot of manna which was placed in the Ark of the Covenant for a memorial of God's gracious provisions for Israel in the wilderness. So inside of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, God commanded that there be a golden pot of manna be placed in the Ark of the Covenant for the children of Israel for a memorial of all that God had provided for the children of Israel uh, while they wandered in the wilderness. Uh, Exodus chapter 16 and verse number 32. And Moses said, This is the same thing which the Lord commandeth. Fill an omer of it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread wherewith I have fed you in the wilderness when I brought you forth from the land of Egypt. And uh, so the hidden manna was speaking of that uh, in the Ark of the Covenant. However, that manna was only a symbol of the hidden manna to come. That was only a symbol of the hidden manna to come. John chapter 6. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. That is that bread which came down from heaven, that was the manna. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Shall live forever. So, in verse number 17 here, he says, uh, uh, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. He said, hey, this is the, the hidden manna is me. It's Jesus. I'm going to give you myself. And because I'm giving you myself, you shall live forever. It's the hidden manna. Christ also said in chapter 2 and verse number 17 that the overcome that's just say overcomers, sorry. Overcomers will receive a white stone, a white stone. I was going to bring and do a whole illustration, but I knew what would happen, and it has happened. We would be close to the end of our time, so I'm just going to share it with you, uh, what a white stone meant. This is, it's amazing, it's really cool to study. White stones were used in ancient courts of justice when a vote was taken as to the guilt of an accused person. That's what these stones were used for. When the jury expressed their verdict, they did so by casting stones into an urn. Black stones meant you were guilty, and white stones meant you were acquitted. Jesus said, if you are an overcomer, I will give you a a white stone. Stone. Therefore, if the explanation is used, the white stones in verse 17 would represent that the believer is being acquitted of sin because of his or her faith in Jesus Christ. That's one option. The other one is even more fun. White stones were also used as tickets 
to gain admission to special social events. If you do some research, you'll find out that these stones were actually, because the Bible says it, and, and you have to excuse my um, geekiness about this because I just think it's really cool. Uh, when they would get these tickets, they would take and they would use chisels and they would put their names on them. And what they used these white stones for was to gain admission to special social events. Like it was the elite special event. If we take that standpoint, then of course that would gain us entrance to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Can you imagine? Now listen, I don't know that this is going to happen, but just give me a moment, all right? Can you imagine getting to heaven and having a white stone with your name on it? And when it's time to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb, there's an urn there, and you take your stone and you drop it in as you walk in. Why? Because you have a ticket. What's my ticket? My ticket is, is that I said yes to Jesus. And now I've gained entrance. And not only that, it's my ticket, but it's also my acquittal to say that Jesus covered it all. It's white. I mean, just think about this for a moment, okay? Because I, I, I don't think you're getting it yet. Just, just, you, you just, I know you're tired. I know it's Wednesday night and I know it's 7.55, but hold on to it for just a moment. Think about this. Think about being falsely accused of something that you've done. And you go to court and you're sitting there in front of a jury of your peers. And people are trying you against something that you didn't do. And you know you didn't do it. But no one else believes you. And you state your case. You go get the best lawyer that there is. And you state your case. Knowing that you're innocent. And the jury has the urn sitting right there. And they go deliberate. I don't know how they did it in Jesus' time. They may have done it all in the same room, I don't know. But they go and deliberate, and they come back out, and they all have stones in their hands. What would you be doing? Tell me what you would be doing. I know what I'd be doing. I'd be praying, that's true. But you know what else I'd be doing? I'd be counting. Because someone's got a black one, and someone's got a white one, and I hope the white ones are more than the black ones. Right? And they walk over and they start dropping them into the urn. Not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. Then the enemy comes with a black stone. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. He's fully acquitted. Here's my stone. Not guilty. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then when it's all over, when it's all over, Jesus takes his stone that he put in the urn and pulls it out. And it has your name on it. And he hands it to you and says, let's go have lunch. Now if that doesn't do something for you, I'm sorry, you're dead. It's just, that's what was happening. He said to the overcomers, listen, I've acquitted you, 
And you're welcome at the marriage supper of the Lamb. What an amazing thought. The letter to the church at Pergamos reminds Christians of all times it is God pur- God's purpose to keep his children separated from all evil and all compromise with the world, whether it's moral or whether it's doctrinal. Any questions tonight? Well, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Any questions? I don't know about you, but I'm having fun. Um, I, I just, I really love studying the Word of God and uh, being able to share it. And um, I appreciate you being here tonight. Um, keep everyone in your prayers that, that was given a prayer request tonight. And uh, just keep our church in your prayers uh, that God would continue to work in this place and uh, continue to uh, uh, bless this church and, um, and you be faithful. And I know that God's going to be faithful uh, for us and to us. And uh, let's just be excited about doing God's business. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for its power. Thank you for its relevancy. Thank you for its excitement. And so God, I pray that you'll encourage us. Lord, uh, I just pray that you will uh, give us a great rest of the week. Um, and Lord, that you would be with each and every individual here tonight. Lord, we love you. We look forward to coming back and worshiping with you on Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.